0: All right, good morning FCC family. Uh, Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and uh, while you're flipping there, I'll actually give you two other scripture verses, Uh, and we will have congregational prayer here in just a moment, Um, but uh, while you're grabbing your Bibles, you can go to Matthew chapter 5, you can go to Matthew chapter 18, put a bookmark there, and then Luke chapter 10, you can put a bookmark there. Uh, So we're going to be referring to a Two or three different passages of scripture today. Uh, so this is the uh, this is the last Sunday of the church quarantine, I, I suppose. Maybe you know, I don't. I don't want to say last. I don't want to declare anything over or anything like that. But uh, very interesting thing. The first the first Sunday of the shutdown, we had a visitor. The last uh, the last uh, Sunday of the shutdown, we've had a visitor. So uh, good to good to always see visitors. Good to see people coming back, wanting to come back, wanting to recongregate. Um, all right, while you're flipping uh, through your Bible, I've I've got uh, something a little out of the ordinary to share with you this morning. And some of you may not feel comfortable with it, I I don't know, Uh, but our elder team thought it would be a good idea to share it with you. We have a few people in our congregation who uh, have gifting in the area of prophecy. And one such person came to us recently after having had a, a dream with spiritual significance. And I'm not going to share the content of the dream or anything. I just want to say that I do trust the person who who gave it to me. Uh, And maybe it's it's not even uh, right to call it a prophecy because I don't know that there was anything that was uh, perfectly foretold. Um, But what it was was more like, here's an exhortation. Here's an exhortation that might need to be shared. Uh, so this individual had a, a dream, and when he woke up from the dream, he felt like the Lord was saying, my people are not ready. And he felt like there's this storm coming, and and he felt like his God's people, God, he was telling him, God was telling him that his people are not ready for it. Uh, and whether that means the whole uh, Church of Christ around the world, or if that just means our, our local congregation, I'm not sure. But... Um, but our, our intent here is not to cause any kind of panic or anything like that. We're not trying to con- tell everybody that the end of the world is coming soon or anything, but that does need to be the, the proper posture for every Christian, uh, that trials and tribulations come, and we need to be rooted in Christ so that we can stand firm in those days. Uh, and, and I don't even really think that this was a, that's what this dream was particularly about. Rather, what I want to do every, uh, today is I want everyone to, after church today, or in this coming week, to set aside a few moments and say, let's, give, let's, let's have a spiritual checkup here. For example, is there some uh, sin in my life that I've become too lackadaisical about, not taking it seriously enough? Am I not consuming enough of God's Word? Am I not connecting with the Lord in prayer enough? Have I been filling my head with worldly wisdom or godly wisdom? And so just do a, give yourself a little bit of a checkup. The Bible is clear that we need to be constantly cultivating a relationship with Christ, and it's also clear that throughout our lives, there are many distractions and mixed messages from society. Therefore, we must be people who have eyes to see and ears to hear and understand what is going on around us and see God's wisdom instead of conventional wisdom. So take some time this week to pray and seek God's wisdom, ask for it, and make it a point to be steadfast in daily consuming the word of God. If we are rooted in Christ and connected to the vine, then we'll be able to uh, weather any storm that is coming. Now, this individual had this dream two and a half weeks ago. Um, and since then, we've had storms, okay? I mean, the coronavirus itself has been a storm. And then when we see what has happened in Minneapolis and other cities over the last few days, storms are coming, uh, storms are building. And if anything else came along, I, I don't know. The nation is, is very tense right now, and uh, everybody has a reaction, and oftentimes something happens, and then it escalates, and then it escalates, and then it escalates. And I think it is the, the duty of the people of God to help the nation even <laughs> take a deep breath, calm down, extend mercy, extend grace. and be the mature ones in the room be the people with the holy spirit who uh, who can calm everything down okay Uh, and i want to leave you with this this verse this is um, nancy shared this one with me uh, Daniel six twenty six twenty seven, and this is written by a pagan king. This is after Daniel in the lions den. This is this is written by a pagan. There's a, There are a few verses in the Bible written by Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, and I love the things that he says. Even though he's really not under the covenant with the people of God, he still recognizes uh, the uh, the mighty God that Israel serves. Listen to this: I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. Go forth with that confidence that you serve almighty God who is mighty to save. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be people who are ready, dressed in your armor, rooted in you, observant of what's going on around us and listening to your still small voice above all the noise in the world we pray lord for the city of minneapolis that you will de-escalate the situation there save people show people that maybe they ought to uh, avoid those areas but lord please de-escalate the tensions bring about true justice Uh, in the, the killing of George Floyd. Lord, please help the other cities that are erupting to also calm down, take a deep breath. Lord, we want constructive ends to all of these problems. And Lord, we lean on you because you are the God that reconciles. And if anybody can reconcile all races, it's you. And so we ask you, Lord, to show the church how it is done so that we can lead the way in doing that. I pray that you will bless our government, give our uh, leaders wisdom, give them restraint, give them maturity, help them to do their job and do them well, and help us to do anything that we can in a calm, mature, loving, Christ-like way. We thank you for your word, Please help us to learn from it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter five. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to be looking at the next in uh, next Beatitude in our series on the Beatitudes here. Uh, and I think it's one that is timely and appropriate for what we've been uh, going through as a nation this week. Let's start reading. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. And let me just read again verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Uh, so today I'm going to... Uh, start off by defining mercy a little bit, and then I'll talk a little bit about why God wants us to be merciful people, and then I'm going to share a couple of Jesus's parables, one as a warning and one to illustrate what it is to be merciful, uh, and then I'm going to leave you with uh, another, another warning of what it is not, and then after that I'm going to give you uh, maybe some suggestions on how you can show mercy in, in your life and ministry. All right, so the first thing I want to do is define mercy. And in English, when we think about mercy, mostly what we think about is leniency, leniency. Most of the time in English, when you use the word mercy, what you look at is somebody who has done something wrong, uh, but they are asking you to be lenient or they expect you to be lenient. They hope that you'll be lenient. And so you show them some kind of leniency so you don't punish them uh, the, uh, uh, the strongest way that you are justified in doing. That is the, the way that most of us use the word mercy in our daily life. It sort of is a, um, a synonym for leniency, being lenient. You throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You know that the judge can put you away for life, uh, but you ask the judge to be merciful, and uh, he only gives you um, time served or, or whatever, something like that. Well, in the Bible, I think we can see mercy being broader, I think even in the in the parables of Jesus, we can see mercy being a lot broader than that. It, it certainly encompasses that, not being as harsh to somebody as you would be justified in doing. But it it encompasses even more than that. And, and here's what I want to do. And you know, in in this series, we have looked at some Greek words, some Greek words in the New Testament, but we've also always had in the back of our mind that when Jesus is telling all of this to his disciples, It is unlikely that he was speaking Greek. He was probably speaking Aramaic or Hebrew or something like that. And he was using those words, words from the Old Testament, words that they would understand, words that pluck strings in their heart. And there is a word in the Old Testament uh, that is, it's all over the Old Testament. And it's such a rich and deep word that there are many, many different ways that it is translated. And that word is hesed. Hesed. Has anybody ever heard the word hesed before? Okay, so hesed is this, um, and I think to say it properly in Hebrew, it's chesed, it's um, because you see it's spelled with an H, and you also see it's spelled with a CH, and so when you see that, you know that in Hebrew, it's a ch sound, so it's a chesed, and so the chesed of God, if you uh, grew up reading the King James Version, more than likely, most of the time, it, uh, it is translated as loving-kindness. So when you're reading the Old Testament, especially in the King James Version, you'll see this word "loving kindness" over and over and over again, and that is Chesed. And what it means, what it means, it means mercy. It means loving kindness. It means so many things. But I heard a really good Bible teacher one time um, define it this way: When the person Chesed is when the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing instead gives me everything. Okay. When the person that from, when a person from whom I have the right to expect nothing instead gives me everything, that is Hesed. And that is a very godly thing. It is a very godly trait. Um, and that is why God wants us to, you know, God wants us to be like Him. Be holy as I am holy. Have my kind of characteristics in yourself. God shows hesed to all the people of the world, and he wants you to do uh, the same thing as well. So when you think about who are the people out there who have offended me, who have offended you, so much that they actually have the right to expect nothing from you. They have no right to expect anything from you at all. You have no obligation to that person at all. And yet, and yet, if you can find a way To give them an incredible blessing, an incredible, surprising, unexpected blessing. When you do that, you are showing Hesed, the Hesed of God, the mercy of God, the loving kindness of God to that person. God has done that for all of us. You see, uh, after the fall in the garden, what did humanity have, uh, what could humanity expect from God? after the fall in the garden, after we have sinned against God, after we have told God, you know what, God, we don't need you anymore. I don't, I don't need your input. I can live life on my own. What do you have the right to expect from God after that? The best-case the best scenario is nothing. The worst-case scenario is judgment, okay? And that is what we have the right to expect from God. And yet, and yet how did God treat Adam and Eve, the people of Israel, Various characters throughout the Old Testament and the entire world in the New Testament. Instead of, instead of doing nothing, just leaving us alone, abandoning us to our own fates, and instead of judging us immediately, what has he done? He has put in place his plan of salvation so that, so that, even though we have the right to expect nothing or worse from him, Actually, in Christ, he has given us all the riches and abundance of the heavenly realms. That is Hesed, God, uh, looking at people who have offended him, and not just forgiving and saying, okay, okay we're cool now, you, you go your way, I'll go my way. No. Instead, he says, everything that I ever promised you, everything that I ever wanted to give you, I'm still going to give it to you, even in greater measure now. That's incredible. That's incredible. And that is what God wants us to do for people. He wants us to, when we are offended, turn it around and say, now, how do I bless this person instead of, how do I write this person off? How do I uh, remove this person entirely from my life? And how do I, um, or how do I get back at this person? Instead, how do I turn around and and bless this person immeasurably and unexpectedly, surprisingly. How can I shock this person with how good I am to them? That is what God wants us to do. Why? Because that is what He has done for us. And if we're going to be like God, we have to do those kinds of things. Okay? Now, I want to illustrate, I want to illustrate um, how strongly God feels about this. By a couple of different parables, one of them is in Matthew chapter 18, and it is the parable of the unmerciful servant. The parable of the unmerciful servant, and I see one person out here shaking his head. Oh yeah, I know that one. I know what that one's about. Uh, as Jesus sets up the parable, uh, it's a it's a kind of a system or a kind of a world that is a little bit vague to us, but it's actually it's it's actually not that far removed from a reality in the United States. Uh, hundred years ago, there was something that was very common called sharecropping. Sharecropping. And in sharecropping, there's an individual who's poor, and there's an individual who's rich. And you go to the rich person, he's got a lot of land, and and he says, you know what, I'm going to let you farm my land. Uh, You don't have any tools, you don't have any land, you're going to have to lease all of this stuff. And then after you uh, produce out of it, you have to give a certain percentage back to me with interest. Uh, And the way it was always set up, the way it was always set up Is that uh, at the end of the harvest season you never had enough to pay back your debt, and then the landowner will say, "Well, don't worry about it. Uh, We'll just compound that with your next year's uh, with your next year's lease too." And what they did was they they created a situation where a very poor person is continually lifelong indebted to a very rich person. You could never get out of it. You were contractually obligated. It was it was a retry at slavery. And it was quite effective. And people are stuck with this person for the rest of their lives. It's either that, or you could get in trouble with the law if you just packed up one night and ran away. Okay? But that's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like in, in this parable when Jesus sets this up. Uh, there's a master, and he's got a couple of servants. Uh, and, and both of these servants owed the master a great deal. Well, if it was straight slavery, you don't owe the master anything. Your life belongs to him anyway. Uh, so it sounds more like sharecropping, some kind of a sharecropping situation. So these two servants, they, they owe the master a great deal. And the master calls them to account. Wants all the money, all the debt paid right now. And so uh, the first, this first servant comes and says, Oh, no, I owe $100,000 to you. There's absolutely no way I can pay that. I could sell everything I own and, and it doesn't hardly even come up to a tenth of that. What in the world am I going to do? Master, master, please, please, no, don't condemn me like that. Don't, and, and what they would do in those days is put you in debtor's prison. And in debtor's prison, uh, that is where you would work as a slave until you paid off the debt, uh, entirely. It was awful. And there are several places in the New Testament where I think, I feel like Jesus is referring to some kind of debtor's prison. Uh, so anyway, the, this servant begs and begs and pleads. And finally, the master says, and and this is pretty incredible that the master does this. The master says, "All right, I'll forgive the whole thing. The whole thing. I just wanted a little bit of time. I just wanted a little more time. I just I would have been content if you just sort of knocked it in half. I would have been I would have been content with anything. And yet this master has shown so much hesed that he has looked at this servant and said, "All right, all right, you, you, you're making a spectacle of yourself. You're crying so bad. I understand how fearful you are. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to cancel the entire debt. Now, how would that servant feel? Incredible. He's just been liberated from slavery, liberated from debt for the rest of his life. Incredible. There's, I'm free. And he would go out skipping down the road. But look what he did. Look what his, look what his response was. He went to... The neighbor's farm, also a sharecropper, a peer of his, and this guy, owed him twenty bucks. Owed him hardly anything. And what did he do? He took that guy and wrung his neck and said, I'm gonna sell you into debtor's prison and everything you got, I'm gonna take every, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take it all. Your life now belongs to me. And that's the way he treated his fellow slave, his fellow servant after the way the master had treated him. And then all of this, uh, of course, it's on his land, it's in his, his neighborhood. The master hears about it all, and he says, you tell that guy to come here and talk to me. And he says, what did you do? What did you do? I, it has come back to me that after I forgave an incredible debt for you, you went out and you were as harsh as you could be to a guy who owed you almost nothing. Is that how you thank me for doing what I did for you? And so it ends very poorly for the guy after that because he did not do what the master had done. He did not show the guy the same kindness, his neighbor the same kindness as the master had uh, had, had shown him. God wants all of us to understand that situation so that When somebody wrongs us, we know that we have no right to revenge, no right to hold a grudge, no right to withhold forgiveness from that person, from another person, because God has shown incredible mercy, kindness, and forgiveness to us. We have no right to hold someone else in judgment and to try to visit revenge on anybody after what God has shown us. The second illustration, is, uh, it's, a very, it's a very well-known illustration. I could probably just refer to it and then move on because you know, know it that well. But I'm going to go ahead and, and preach it anyway. And that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is so well-known that it's, it's, it's a phrase in common usage. People out in, the, in public, they can't just refer to the parable of the unmerciful servant. No, that doesn't compute with most people. But everybody knows what a good Samaritan is, although they probably don't know the story. And that story is also pretty incredible. Um, because it is about somebody showing kindness to another person who would probably not have reciprocated, okay? Uh, So uh, the first thing we have to do to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan is we have to define what a Samaritan is. And, And a Samaritan isn't just somebody that helps somebody. Most of the people in the world, if you say, what is a Samaritan? They'll say, well, it's just somebody who helps somebody. That's what it has come to mean, but what it really is, is a person from Samaria. And uh, the, the Jewish people of Jesus' day did not like Samaritans uh, because um, they had theological controversy. Uh, they, they also had mixed blood. Um, and I won't give you the whole, the whole uh, um, story of it, but long, long time before um, the, the Samaritans, the people of northern Israel, had mixed with another race, And so that made them impure in their bloodline. Uh, And then when they came back from captivity, just like all the Jewish people had come back from captivity, when they came back from captivity, they decided that they didn't want to worship in Jerusalem. They decided they wanted to worship on the mountain in Samaria. And uh, all good Jewish people know that there's only one place to worship in the world, and that is in Jerusalem. So um, you have... You have people with. There's a race issue here, but there's also a theological issue here, and they hate each other so bad that when a Jewish person goes from the southern province of Judea to the northern province of Galilee and Samaria is right there in the middle, they'll go around it. They will. They will. They will make their journey twice as long so that they can so they can avoid it. All right. Is there any is there any way I can illustrate that? Um, say. No, there's no way. Okay, no, there is a way. Here's here's the way it is. If you hated New Hampshire so bad, but you wanted to go to Vermont, okay? And there's no way for you to, if you're in Maine, there's no way for you to get to Vermont except go through New Hampshire, right? No. You can head down to Bath, hire yourself a boat, and take that boat all the way down to Boston Harbor, and then after that, you can rent a car, and um, then you can drive um, out till, to western Massachusetts and then head north up into Vermont. Can you do that? Is that I'll have to get out the, the Atlas. It's not even on the Gazetteer, is it? but I'll have to get out uh, some sort of New England New England access, a, 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 a Atlas and, and, sh- and see if that's possible. But how long would it take to do that? How long would it take to do that? A trip to Vermont, if you if you want to go from here to Vermont, how how long do you really have to drive? Four hours? Something like that? But if, if you decided to take a boat down to Boston and then drive up that other way, how long would that take you? 10, 12 hours? But that's how much you hate the people of New Hampshire, right? Okay? Okay. I don't think anybody hates New Hampshire that much, do they? I mean, come on. What could you hate in New Hampshire? Anyway. Maybe some bad memories. All right. But that is what the, the Jewish people felt about Samaria. That is the links that they would go to to avoid setting foot in Samaria because they'd have to interact with the Samaritan and they'd have to, uh, I mean, just, just crossing the border contaminates you. You can just feel it all over yourself, right? Okay, so here's the story. A man was going from uh, uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, and that's a, that's a downhill trek, by the way. And on the road, he gets beset by robbers. He gets beset by robbers. And the robbers beat him up, leave him nearly dead, take everything he's got, and then just leave him in the ditch. Now, this guy needs somebody to show kindness to him. He needs somebody to show some kind of mercy to him, uh, or else he's going to lay there and bleed to death. And this is the the audacious part of the parable. You know, when Jesus started teaching parables and, and telling parables, you have to know that with a good many of them, his first sentence, when it comes out, uh-huh, uh-huh, everybody's on track, and then all of a sudden he'll, he'll, he'll make a statement, and everybody will say, I was with you till there, because right at this point you just got preposterous. Okay, So, for example, in the parable of the prodigal son, and I'm chasing a little bit of a rabbit here, but in the parable of the prodigal son, uh, a man had two sons, perfectly plausible, no lots of people that have two sons, keep on with your parable. And the younger son goes to the father and says, I want all my inheritance now. They're all saying at that point, I'm sorry. That's completely implausible. Because what he's doing there is he's saying to the father, I wish you were dead. That's not going to happen. You just lost me, Jesus. There, this 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 parable, this whole situation that you've dreamed up here, it's preposterous. And then Jesus tells the whole parable, and it just gets more preposterous with every line. All right, so anyway, Jesus is telling this story, and there's this guy on the side of the road, and along comes a, a priest. And you know that the priests are the good people right? You know that the priests are the good people. And so who's going to help this guy? If a priest comes by and sees this guy, obviously the priest is going to help the guy. And Jesus says, the priest went right on by. And everybody says, there might be a scenario or two where I can imagine a priest cannot get himself unclean by touching blood or touching the guy. And if the guy dies, then now he's unclean and he can't perform his priestly duties. All right, it's an, it seems implausible, but I could see how in 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 the universe, okay, maybe that could happen. But the guy would feel the priest would feel very bad about it. And so the priest goes on by, and then Jesus says, and then a levite comes by, and the levite goes on the other side of the road, doesn't help the guy either. All right, Jesus, this is straining credulity, but okay, I have no idea. Uh it just doesn't seem right. What's your next line? And then a Samaritan comes by and helps the guy. And they all say, you lost me. (laughs) No way that's going to happen. The Samaritans are so bad. They hate us as much as we hate them. There's no way they would help us. Right? And then Jesus says, no. He put him on his donkey. He took him to an inn. He paid for it all. He bandaged the guy's wounds. And then he promised to come back and pay the rest of the guy's medical bills later on. And everybody's just standing there saying, that's ludicrous. There's no way that that would happen. There's no way that the good Jewish people would let one of their own bleed to death in the ditch and yet a Samaritan would come along and help this person. No way. No way, Jesus. This is implausible. And then at the end of that parable, he, he speaks to the guy who, who asked him the question that prompted the parable. Because it was all about who's my neighbor and how do I help my neighbor? How do I love my neighbor? How do I show hesed to my neighbor? And Jesus says, now, speaking about this guy who's in the ditch over here who's been beat up, who was his neighbor? Who was being neighborly to this guy? And the guy comes back, and everybody will always point out that he didn't say the Samaritan. He couldn't utter those words from his lips. Samaritan was the nice guy. He can't say that out loud. But what he does say is, the one who showed him mercy, the one who showed him hesed, that's the one that loved his neighbor as himself. And Jesus said, now you go, do and li- go and do likewise. So for you, the good people at FCC, I know that you're not like those people then and that you don't have any uh, incredible prejudice towards anybody. You're an extremely loving and tolerant people. There's nobody out there in the world that annoys you. There's nobody out there that... Uh, that rubs you the wrong way, there's nobody that you look down upon or there's nobody out there that you just wouldn't trust implicitly, right? There's nobody like that. You're not like that. You don't have that much hatred and prejudice in your heart, do you? But what if Jesus turned this around and said, Folks, what if you're the Samaritan? What if you're the person that somebody out there is skeptical of What if you're the person out there that is hated? What if you're the person out there that people are intolerant of? Will you write off the people of the world because they've written you off? What will you do? Are you willing to show love to people that despise you? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be as good as a Samaritan. Now I want to come back and I want to give you just a little bit of a word of warning about this. When I I first read this, the thing that came to me that I don't want people to take it this way, here it is. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I don't want us to go away thinking, oh that's just karma. He's just talking about karma, all right? And in karma, what happens is if you do something wrong, Eventually, not not directly, not directly reciprocating right here, but just in your doings later on, something bad is going to come back to you. The universe is going to make sure of it. No, that's not what it is. I don't even feel like it's what goes around comes around, and I don't feel like it's even reaping what you sow. What is this? What it really is is it's God demanding that you show. A kindness, an attribute that he has shown to you. That is what it is. And like Stacy said in the children's story time, it's, it's, it's reversed. We should understand it in reverse. If you're a believer, you follow Christ, you have received mercy. You have received Hesed from God. You have received kindness from God. Blessed are you. And don't think of it as obtaining wealth and abundance and all this stuff. If you'll go out and show that same kind of love and mercy and kindness, then God will say, "That is what I'm talking about. That's what I want." And oh, the joy you will have when you do! God is quite joyful in showing you mercy. What happens when a sinner repents? The ninety and nine, you know, the the, the, the ninety but the but the one sheep comes back and repents, or blah blah blah. What happens in heaven when one sinner repents? What does he say? All of heaven rejoices because God got another chance to show incredible mercy. And if you go out looking for chances to show mercy and to reconcile relationship, oh, the joy, oh, the blessedness, oh, the bliss that you will have. It's also not this. Blessed are those who condone any action, for all of their actions will be condoned. No, that's not what it is. That's not what it is. Don't take it that way. Um, It is very popular among Christians to to really twist this or judge not lest ye be judged, to twist those into a way that gives moral license to you and everybody else in the world. Because we're not supposed to judge. No, no. All the time, you're supposed to be evaluating what actions and words are life-giving and what are not. But when you approach somebody to share the gospel with them or even to confront them about what they're doing, hesed is the thing that needs to be driving you. You're supposed to apply this verse, not with moral license, but with reconciling love. Reconciling love and the kind of words and nudges that bring people from a lifestyle that destroys them over to walking with Christ, which is the most life-giving walk that you can have. All right. So if you want to be godly, seek out those who assume that you hate them and surprise them by showing incredible kindness, and love. That is what God has done for us. And if you want to be a chip off the old block, that needs to drive your evangelism. Knowing what God has done for you should push you to extend the same thing to others. Sound risky? Sound hard? Yes. Ask Jesus how hard it was to save humanity. It was not easy. But He will go with you to the end of the age. Today is Pentecost Sunday. You will have the Holy Spirit walking with you every step of the way to empower you and to even give you the words. And on that first Sunday, boy, did the Holy Spirit give people words, words that they'd never spoken, words they'd never uttered, words they didn't even understand. But He gave them words to evangelize and to proclaim The love of God, like it had never been proclaimed before. So go forth with great mercy in your heart. Let that drive your evangelism and all of your ministry. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for the mercy that you have shown us. And Lord, help us to always be looking for a chance to show mercy, to show love, to show kindness, to extend forgiveness, to reconcile heaven and earth, like you have done, and to reconcile the people of the world together. We pray that in our nation today, you will prompt the people who are in the middle of it, those who have the position and the power to do something, to show that incredible reconciling, mercy, hessid, loving kindness Help the church to shock people with just how wonderful it can be towards them, towards those who don't even like them and don't trust them. We love you and we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Good to see everybody here this morning. Remember to call me tomorrow to make your reservation for first service or second service. And I'll see you next week. Bye.